Uh, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, Bill went on a business trip for a few days, and while he was gone, his, once he returned home, his wife had reported back to him and said, you know, your dog has missed you so much. He, he's been sitting at the front door waiting for you to come home all this time. He's just so missed you, and Bill appreciated that, and he thought for a moment, and he said, that's, that's really sweet, and it shows such devotion uh, by our dog. I, I wonder, though, if you would have the same concern for me, honey. And uh, she, well, she looked at him, and she said, honey, if you were gone overnight, and I didn't know where you were, you better believe I'd be waiting for you at the front door. <laughs> so... Jealousy is part of relationships. Um, as we look at Song of Songs 3 and 4, I want you to keep this phrase in mind. He is jealous for me. Let's, clo- uh, let's, let's not close. See, my mind, I need quiet, quiet my heart right now. Let's open our sermon time in prayer. Lord, there is nothing more important in this moment than what your word has for us. Whatever else is going on in our lives, what's coming later on this day, and all the things, good things even, that pull for our attention, Lord, we would ask that that you would Allow us to mentally put them aside. Help me in this moment uh, to, to be, be clear in my thinking, uh, to simply look to your word and that your spirit would, would work through me, that you would open hearts, open our eyes uh, to see the glory of who you are. Lord, there are things that have already gone wrong this morning and misspeakings and all of that, but Lord, our, our single desire is that, that you would be glorified. We are imperfect people and we are constantly reminded of that. And yet you love us and your love runs deep and you are jealous for your people. And you want our attention, not on all of the things that we have to do, not even on the the people around us, but you want our attention first and foremost on you. And when that takes place, Lord, all those other things fall into place and you work out the details and you strengthen our relationships. So as we come to your word, point point us to Christ today. And truly quiet our hearts in this moment. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you haven't been here uh, for the first couple sermons in our series, Song of Songs, I'm not going to give a giant recap, but it is a love song between a man and a woman, King Solomon and his beloved. And if you want to catch up, you can do that on our website or on our YouTube page and, and uh, hear the first two sermons in the series. But today we're going to jump in uh, to chapters 3 and 4. And the first two chapters, you had a lot of back and forth between the beloved and the lover. Some of your Bibles may uh, label some of, uh, a, a title of who is speaking, and, and again, as we looked at, even there's debate on uh, even some of that, who is actually speaking in those things, but it's a, it was a lot of back and forth, uh, but we came away with the main point of, oh, how he loves us. King Solomon had a love for his beloved that totally captivated her, that changed her outlook, that built and lifted her up in much the same way that God does for his people. Now we've come into chapter number three, and the beloved is is still speaking here. She speaks from uh, verses 16 and 17 of chapter two, and her her, 
uh, speaking continues into chapter 3. And so, similar to what we did last week, I'll read some verses and then we will walk through what, at least what we can make sense of to, uh, to the best of our ability. So verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3 says this, All night long on my bed I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely I had passed him when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. So here in these first four verses, uh, many believe what we're looking at is she's maybe having a dream. She's on her bed and she's reflecting and she's thinking. But in this dream, or if it's even something that really took place, the beloved cannot find her lover. And it would appear uh, that at this point in the song, that these two are not yet married. I think we'll see towards the end of chapter 4, which we'll touch on next week, uh, is you see the consummation of that marriage. But it's, this is that story of a, a, a couple going from that engagement period into that marriage. And, and they are not yet there yet. So, so she begins to search, but she can't find him. And you get the idea that this is a persistent, a frantic search. Four times she uses one of these phrases, I looked, I looked, I will search, I looked. So she's longing for him. She can't find him. And she's sort of panicking. And then she describes what is a picture of her going out into the streets and asking the watchman. Now remember, this is a song and it uses descriptive language, but we don't have to necessarily take this as like this is an actual story that's unfolding. They are using this language to describe their feelings and their emotions and what they're going through even in their relationship. So did she really go out into the streets? Debatable. The point is that she has such a desire to be with her lover and she's going to great lengths to bring him back into intimacy with her. So something's happened here that they are, their, their intimacy has been broken. And in verses 1 and 2, she, she, her initial efforts fail. They, she doesn't find him. She says, I did not find him. Eventually, verse 4, she does find him. And it's, it's like, whew. and you see what she says in verse number 4, I found him and I hold him tight. I'm not going to let him go. You get this, these emotional swings happening franticness, panicking, loss of lover to I find him and, and I'm comforted and I'm not letting him go. A result of all that is what she charges to the daughters of Jerusalem in verse number 5 where she says, daughters of Jerusalem, these are the maidens, these are her friends that we saw that spoke in chapter 1. I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Don't stir love until it's time. This is the second time the beloved has given a warning to the maidens. Love is strong. And the emotional ties here in this relationship between these people runs deep. This is... Love is something good. It's been created for us. It's something that we should pursue. It's something that's good to be desired. But because of sin, we, we experience a broken love. We experience an imperfect love. It's not always the way that we want it to be. Sometimes that love changes in the relationship. And love, even in marital love, it has its ups and downs. Those of you who are married, you know what I'm talking about. Love is a choice. You don't wake up every day and feel every day and feel like you maybe love your spouse. Maybe there's some disconnect there. 
But here, this couple felt as if they were separated. Maybe they were literally separated. Separation is painful. When, when your spouse goes on a trip or when someone you love is not near you for an extended period, what do you do? You, you can't wait for them to come back. There's this anticipation. You're, maybe you count down the days. Teens, your parents are not going to do that when you leave this afternoon. But most of the time, you anticipate that reunion. You want them to come back. And love is hard because you open yourself up to somebody. You give them a piece of your heart and inevitably, they're going to disappoint you or something along the line is going to cause a separation at some level, a break in the relationship. This is why in verse number four, when she finds her lover, she does not let go. While we might experience struggles in love here on earth, we are though reminded that there is a perfect love that will not let you go. A love that surpasses all other loves. Many years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the Christians in Rome. In Romans chapter 8, in verses 37 to 39, uh, you, you know these verses, but here they are on the screen for you. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, you pick something, Paul covers it, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love will never let you go. While various things may separate you from loving relationships on this earth, that is, could be sinful choices, could be the, result, the end result of sin, death, this separation that we experience when someone that we love passes, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is a glorious truth that we, that we have as believers have to reflect on, that we can never be separated from the bridegroom like what this bride is experiencing now. There never needs to be a frantic searching as, does God love me? I feel like I, I can't find him. He's always there. You come to verse six, and, 6 through 11. She's found her lover and now she begins to describe and reflect on him a little bit more. She says in verse number 6, Who is this coming from the desert like a column of smoke? I wasn't going to say this, but I, I used something like that this morning. I went for a walk early this morning, and I was going up at MU, and up coming up the hill was what looked like my wife. And I said, who is this coming up MU Hill? Um, she said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm speaking on today, so <laughs> bear with me. Who is this coming up from the desert like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon, its posts he made of silver, its base of gold, its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior lovingly inlaid by the daughters of Jerusalem. Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon wearing the crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. So here the, the beloved describes her lover, and it's none other than Solomon, arrayed in all of his splendor, his splendor. So this shepherd boy that was described earlier for us is a king, and the king has come to claim his bride. 
He spares no expense for his bride. You have all these elaborate descriptions. And this is not just so Solomon can make a show of himself and everybody will be impressed. Notice what it says there at the end of verse number 10 uh, about this carriage that he comes for his bride. It's interior, lovingly inlaid or inlaid with love. This was all for her. It's not just a show to impress other people. He's not just putting on a front when others are watching. This was truly him pouring himself out and decking, yes, himself out, but all that we see here is all done for his bride. Verse 7 and 8. What what is this description here? You have these warriors and these people wearing swords and preparing for the terrors of the night. what, What she's saying is, he is my protector. He's the defender against all enemies, no matter what comes. Husbands, you are called to protect your wives. And I don't mean this to be like, okay, you have to be like a Rambo. There was a Rambo movie that came out in 2019. Like, man, how long has this series been going? But it's not this, this idea where you're this you know, warrior with you know, guns and muscles and all of these things, although you should be able to you know, protect your wife physically but this is a protection against all attacks whether it's physical whether it's verbal whether it's emotional you are a protector of your wife you stand by your wife's side this includes in the home and out of the home you and your wife stand together against even your children not not that we see our children as enemies But kids, kids listening, you are the masters of pitting your parents against each other. In my house, it goes something like this. It's 4.30 in the afternoon, and one of my kids comes and says, Dad, can I have one of those donuts on the counter? And I've learned over the years, the correct answer is not to say, sure, help yourself. It's not, not the best answer. But I, I know that's the answer my kids like to hear. And I want them to like me. And so that's the answer that I want to give them. Because I want to be the good guy. But I know what's going to follow. It's not going to be too long before I hear, girls, who told you you could have that donut before dinner? <laughs> now, I've gone to great lengths for my kids. Allow them a donut you would think they would, they would take this one for me. And they would say, well, while you weren't looking, we snuck one of those donuts. That's not normally what I hear. Normally I hear, Daddy said we could have one. Silly illustration here. I have learned that the, the correct answer, right? You know the correct answer? if it's okay with your mom. They always put it back to her. Actually, that is not not the best answer. Because I already know what she's going to feel and say about that, and really what I should feel and say about that too in that moment. And what have I just done in that moment? I have not protected my wife and actually put us at odds with one another because now my kids, and we, I know, we're, we're, sinner, we're sinners, we're prideful, we like to be the good guy, and sometimes we can make our spouse out to be the bad guy. But that is not protecting our wives. Parents, even if you don't fully agree with your spouse in, a mo- in the moment when your kids are talking with you, Kids, plug your ears, but take their side. Take the side of your spouse and then talk about it in private. We're called to be protectors of our spouse and that will actually help your kids. That's healthy for them. Doesn't mean we lie, but we're there as protectors of our wives, husbands in particular. Verse number 11 You come to the end of this, and he says, The day his heart rejoiced. 
So this is not this arranged marriage that he's doing out of just, you know, duty. I have to, do, I have to get married. This was arranged. I, I don't really want to do this. But he, his heart has rejo- is rejoicing. He delights in her, and, the, and the, he delights in the wedding day, and he spares no expense. Have you noticed the furnishings of the items being used in the description of Solomon's carriage and all the things that even she describes about him are the same items and furnishings that Solomon uses in building the temple of God? That was, that was one of the, the, the main things that God used Solomon to do was build the temple and, and there was nothing like it. Once it was destroyed and rebuilt, even the, the, the older people that remembered Solomon's temple wept because it just didn't live up to it. So you have the same furnishings here in the building of the temple. And, and I do think what it is speaking to, th- these things were dear and precious to Solomon's heart in seeing the value of the temple of God in the same way he sees his bride as valuable and he spares no expense for her. Just like he saw the, the, the importance of the items and the furnishings that went into the temple. And again, some of that was instructed by the Lord, but he sees the value in his bride and he spares no expense. We have this elaborate description here of Solomon. And she calls people, in verse number 7, the beloved calls people to look at Solomon. In verse number 11, Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon wearing the crown. Look at this king. Look at my lover. She's anticipating his arrival. I think for us today, we are called to as well reflect on and consider the beauty and majesty of King Jesus on his throne. Like the bride, we anticipate our king to return. What picture do we have of him? Well, we have many different pictures that we could turn to, but I I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 1. It's page 1028 there in your Bibles, but I just want to read a few verses. And I want you to put yourself in the mindset of this bride as she is looking out into the distance and she's seeing her lover, her king, come for her. In the same way, in a similar way, we are looking for our King, our King Jesus to come for us. In Revelation chapter 4, chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, here's what John writes as he sees this vision, and in a similar way, maybe he's saying, look, look, look at who is coming for his people. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jump down to verse number 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstand was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. 
His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Picture King Jesus coming. Whatever description the bride gives us of Solomon in the Song of Songs pales in comparison to what King Jesus looks like as we await his coming. Not only pales in comparison, but it points that her description points us forward to the bridegroom that is coming, that we anticipate. Jesus is the most glorious of all kings. And one day we will hear his voice and we will see his face and it will be the sweetest sound and sight that you will ever experience. Do you anticipate his coming? Are you ready for him to come? Because one day he will come. And you, you feel the weight of that majesty as king. I love what verse 18 there said in Revelation 1. He, he will touch us and he say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because he comes speaking words of love to his bride. Just like we find Solomon doing in chapter 4. And with that, Song of Songs 4. So this is the, the, the beloved anticipating and seeing the king in all of his splendor coming for her. Now it's his turn to respond. It's his turn to speak. And he does so beginning in chapter 4. In verse number 1, he says, Oh, or he says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Notice again the need for him to remind his bride over and over that he loves her, that she is beautiful to him. So it's, it's not like he just tells her this once and then forgets about it. Continuing in verse number one, your eyes behind your veil are like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. There's a romantic picture. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep, just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle, excuse me, that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of the leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, the fragrance of your perfume than any spices. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. I want to I stop there. We'll look at verse 12 shortly. But he describes his beloved, and you notice here, he notices her physical features, seven of them to be exact, her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her lips, her cheeks, her neck, her breasts. These things are not shameful within marriage. God made your spouse for your pleasure and enjoyment, not to gratify your lust, but to satisfy your love. 
Now, some of this symbolism we can identify with. Eyes that are gentle and white like a dove. Teeth that are white and newly washed. And he adds in there, you're not missing any of them. You have all your teeth. <laughs> Lips and mouth are lovely. Perhaps she's wearing lipstick here. That could be a possibility. Then, she, then it's her temples, or your translation might say cheeks. The, the Hebrew is the side, the side of the head. This is why you get different understandings of that. Like pomegranate. Again, maybe a reference to makeup uh, on her cheeks. Now, her hair is like a flock of goats. I tend, I know what I picture when I think of goats, short-haired, ugly-looking things. But think long-haired goats here, bouncing from a distance up the mountain or down the mountain in herds. I think the imagery here is that your hair bounces and waves like they would have pictured flocks of goats coming down the mountain. So it is a good thing, okay? It is a good thing. And he's describing here what he sees in her, but you also sort of get the sense that she's dressing up for him. Uh, she's, she's putting on perhaps makeup, but she's making herself notice. She wants him to notice her. Her neck is adorned with ornaments of gold and pearls. And he, as he describes, like, like the architecture, the beauty of the Tower of David. Again, using all this imagery uh, that even the Israelites would have known and as they, they looked at the Tower of David and the greatness of who David was as, as their first true king that God appointed. Then, she, then he continues and he says, your breasts are like young fawns, which really I think points to Two things. One, their attractiveness to him, but also her femininity. That, that this was a, a woman. That, that would be very significant in that culture. She was of age. Now, when we go through all of these things, and, and we're, just, we're just sort of scratching the surface and glancing at this imagery, but it has been suggested that Solomon's description of his bride has these rich undertones um, and, and, and features that point to the preciousness that he and the Israelites would have for the promised land. And this is where I think those, that, that underlying interpretation that this is, yes, this is a husband and wife relationship, but there's something more here. Because you start looking at some of the language that he uses, like I mentioned, as the, the beloved uses in the description of what Solomon uh, used in his chariots, sort of pointed to what was used in the building of the temple. But here you have uh, these descriptions of the beloved, and you think about the Israelites and Solomon himself would have, uh, and were anticipating, and, and in that time when Solomon's reign, enjoying the blessings of the land that God had promised to them with all of its richness and fertility and life and beauty and protection. Even verse 11, you can't help but escape that sort of thinking when you read the milk, milk and honey are under your tongue. How is the land of God that he promised to his people described the land flowing with milk and honey? You can do much more reading on this yourself, but even if you want to read something in Scripture related, read Hosea 14. And you'll find very similar language. Hosea, Hosea you talk about uh, a description of God and his uh, his wife, that, the, that's the whole point of the book of Hosea. But Hosea 14, very similar language to what we read in Song of Songs, describing God and his people. And I do think it's true. What, what Solomon sees in his beloved is what he felt related to the, the blessing of the land for his people, what he was enjoying from, the, from actually the hand of God. She now, as he brings that imagery over into his relationship with this woman, she now is seen as a blessing of God to him. 
And he notices and enjoys everything about her. And we, we talked about extensively that she has been captivated by his love. But now it's the other way around too. He has been captivated by her love. In verse number 9, he says, you, he says, twice you have stolen my heart. But the second time he says, you have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. You've captivated me. Verse number 10, her love is more pleasing than wine. In other words, she brings all of the delights of, love, of wine without any of the bitter effects, without any of the hangover. She is all good, not bitter. You compare this to what Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse, verses 3 through 5. I, I have this on the screen for you. He says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol or the grave or hell. Completely different than what we read here in chapter number four of Song of Songs. Friends, there are other men and women who may look attractive on the outside. But if that person is not your spouse, it will taste bitter in the end. And it will only lead to regrets. To her, or to him, this beloved, this one and only, was Sweet with nothing bitter. In verse number seven, notice how he describes her. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Does that mean she's perfect? Of course not. None of us are perfect. But he chooses to see the beauty in her. That's the way that he sees his bride. There is no flaw in you. Now everyone's imperfect. And when you get married, you bring two sinners together. Two imperfect people, in truth, with lots of flaws. It's not easy to find the flaw in your spouse. Sorry, it's easy. It's not hard to find the flaw in your spouse. Yes, some of you are following that. Because they're all over the place. You must choose to see the beauty in your spouse. That's what, that's what Solomon chose to do. She's not perfect. She actually describes all of her imperfections in chapter 1. Remember when she's, she's sort of feeling uh, all those feelings of insecurity and, man, I'm, I'm dark and I'm unlovely. And over and over he says, you are beautiful to me. I'm going to focus on the things that I find beautiful in you, not the flaws that I could focus on. In verse number 12, now you come to, and I think you sort of see what appears to be a transition into marriage. Although we'll wait till, really till next week um, to, to go into the consummation of the marriage. Um that you have that takes place between the physical union of, a, of the husband and wife here. But in verse number 12, he says, You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Really, what is he doing here? Well, he's pointing to, he's pointing to her virginity and saving herself for marriage. This is not a popular thing today. You have movies and shows that have come out through the years, really making a mock of remaining pure until your marriage. This idea of saving yourself physically uh, is not something that you're going to hear in our culture today. So we need to be reminded of what God says about it. One, verse number 12, what does God say about it? This is a positive thing. You are a garden locked up, a spring that is sealed but notice uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 3 through 5, again, I have these words uh, on the screen for you. Here's what Paul writes 
here. He says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Here's what I want us to focus on. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. In other words, if we combine those thoughts with Song of Songs, the wife is her husband's own private garden and the, wife, the husband is his wife's own private garden. And what Solomon is saying in verse number 12 is that the beloved has kept herself for that wedding day. She has sealed herself up for her lover. Now, this can bring up a lot of emotions as we, as we reflect on our own past. Maybe that can't be said about you. But I want to I remind us in this moment, because of Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All past sin is forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west. That's another way of saying they're never going to be brought back up, again, up before you to stand and give an account for. Christ has paid that sin in full. Guilt is driven away. That shame is swept away as we understand that in reality, none of us are pure. But in Christ, we have all been made pure. And, that, and that's what we need to focus on, even in our own lives as we reflect on these things. But we don't get to define sex and marriage like we want. God sets the rules. Several years ago, I, I was listening to a podcast um, called Hidden Brain, and they would talk about some different fascinating things on there. Not, not a Christian um, podcast, but they had an episode where they, had, they said, when did marriage become so hard? This is what they're talking about. And in the midst of that podcast, they, they equated marriage sort of to like investing for retirement. And here's what, here's what they said. Thinking about your marriage situation. Diversify your portfolio. If you're not finding a need met in your life with your spouse, look elsewhere. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. There's lots of reward, but there's a lot of risk. This is what, this is what our culture is telling us. And this was presented with a very thoughtful and intellectual uh, conversation and a thoughtful intellectual way of handling the struggles of marriage. But what really are they saying? It's okay to find your emotional, your intellectual, and even your sexual needs met through mutually agreed upon avenues, even if you have to look elsewhere. Well, what's wrong with this perspective? There's a lot of things wrong with it, but I think even foundationally, there's a misconception hear about marriage. Marriage is not about you and your needs exclusively. You turn our minds to the biblical imagery of marriage, this picture of Christ and the church and Christ's love for his bride and the bride's love for Christ. As believers, we understand that, that we are to be reserved exclusively for Christ. We're not to worship false idols. We're not to run after other gods. We are to die to ourself. And the same is true in our marriages. We die to ourselves. As believers, that's what we're called to, not just in relationship with God, but in our relationship with other people. We put others first. This is, again, true love. And so we don't seek these things outside of our spouse And if a spouse does seek fulfillment in these things somewhere else, you have a right to be jealous. That's natural. Uh, Solomon continues in Proverbs 5. I have a couple other verses here. We looked at verses 3 through 5, but he continues here and he says, he says this, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let them be 
for yourself alone. Does Solomon have a fixation on wells? No, he's, he's talking about your spouse. Drink and be satisfied from the one that you have set yourself apart to. They are for you alone. And it is natural and it is right to be jealous when, that ha- when, that, when, when those things are satisfied elsewhere. Obviously, that's not what Solomon finds of his beloved in chapter 4 and verse number 12. He finds her as a garden locked up, a sealed fountain. But I want to take a few moments here and turn our attention even more so spiritually. Christian brothers and sisters, when we flirt with other gods, Yahweh is jealous. We are his bride. He is jealous for his people. James chapter 4 and verse number 4, you say, does this take place among Christians? Absolutely. Here's what James writes to the Christians then, and we could most surely apply it to our own lives today. Notice how he starts. Nope, not pulling any punches here. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is speaking here about spiritual adultery. You cannot love God and this world at the same time. And we flirt with other gods when we follow the culture instead of God's word, when we spend more time chasing our dreams than God's will, when we live with our eyes set on this world rather than the world to come. Those are all ways that we commit spiritual adultery and and more. Christian, he's calling you to have eyes only for your lover, only for King Jesus. Because he has eyes only for you. This is how he sees you. In verse number seven, there is no flaw in you. Let that sink in for a moment. He sees you as flawless. Nothing imperfect. Why can he say that? Why does he see us like that? Because of Christ Jesus. He has his eye on you. He sees you as perfect. And he has a right to be jealous for you. You are his. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You, similar to what we're talking about marriage, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God is working to make his bride pure. He has every right to be jealous for you. And so when your eyes stray and your heart follow other gods, and this will happen because it happened to Solomon. At the end of his life, the sad reality was, it says that he started to follow other gods. And so when this happens to you, I would urge you then to look to Jesus Christ, the faithful bridegroom, the lamb who was slain and by his blood you have been purchased. Yes, you may fail. Yes, you may may fall. Yes, what was written about the bride in verse number 12 is not true for any of us. We have all gone astray. But one thing has remained constant. Though you may fail and be unfaithful to the Lord, He never fails you. Praise God, we are kept by His faithfulness, not our own. The allure of this world is strong, but when we rest in His love for us, this ultimate love that we're seeing undergirding everything about this relationship 
When we rest in that love, all of the allure of the world, the beauty, what seems to be beauty, is exposed for the cheap, shallow substitute that it really is. It is, a, it is a contrast between the beauty of what was being described in this relationship and what we read about in Proverbs chapter 5. In the end, it's bitter. I want us to turn to one last text and we will conclude. Exodus chapter 20. It's page number 61. This is right in the middle here of the Ten Commandments. Notice verses 3 to 6, Exodus chapter 20. For you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Those who are mine, God says. Those who love me and keep my commandments. And of course, we can't do that perfectly. But when we trust in Christ, that perfection of love and keeping his commandments is imputed to us. It's credited to our account through Christ. So those who are mine, he says, I will show you steadfast love. Christian, God has redeemed you through the cross of Jesus. And because of Jesus, he will present his church, his bride. He will present you as a garden locked up, completely pure. 